You're listening to episode 183 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. Cornelis Venema concludes his series on assurance of salvation by examining the topic of the fruit of assurance and whether it can genuinely be considered a ground for one's confidence in salvation. Can the visible evidence of a transformed life, the growth in godliness, and the bearing of spiritual fruit truly provide a firm foundation for one's assurance? Dr. Venema answers this question and more in today's episode of Roundtable. Take a listen. Our third session on the question of the grounds for the assurance of salvation that believers may have is probably bringing us into an arena that is most disputed and debated among uh, students of the Reformation and developments in the post-Reformation and even students of the Reformed tradition more narrowly. The way the narrative usually runs is that and I may have even suggested it in some of my emphases in the first two sessions, is that whereas the early Reformation period and even the early Reformed confessions give us a very robust and uh, undiminished affirmation that all true believers should be fully assured of their salvation, and in fact are assured of their salvation to some degree, Whereas, uh, and for a variety of reasons it's argued, in the developing Reformed tradition and early Reformed orthodoxy, and then by the time you come to the Westminster Confession and standards at the time of the convening of the Westminster Assembly, you note what some will argue is a subjective turn a greater degree of emphasis is placed upon the role of good works in respect to confirming the genuineness of true faith. And that becomes to, comes to play a, a greater role, an increasingly greater role, in the cultivation of assurance. And in its most uh, militant expression, some will argue that this represents a rather significant departure from the viewpoint of Calvin Luther, the early Reformation, and even some of the earlier Reformed confessions. And so assurance becomes in the later tradition among some of the Puritans and others a relatively rare jewel, something enjoyed only by some even perhaps only a few. And most Christians at the end of the day are not able to attain to. And assurance, sometimes the way it's expressed is assurance of salvation does not belong so much to faith as an essential component of faith as it is a fruit that flows from faith that is not always a present uh, to the same degree and sometimes not present at all. Though the faith is genuine, uh, it doesn't produce and doesn't bear fruit in the way of assurance. Now, I, I could easily get lost in the weeds of that whole debate. I'm going to take a more uh, positive and thetical approach and argue that there is a broad 
a broad consensus in the Reformed tradition and even between the earlier confessions like the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, Canons of Dort, and the somewhat later, although the Westminster Confession comes fast on the heels of the Canons of Dort in the 17th century, that there's a broad consensus. And the way I put it is the principal grounds and bases where you really have a sure footing and a solid, secure platform on which to have confidence in God's presence is when you, through faith, as that faith is worked by the Spirit with the Word, put your confidence and embrace wholeheartedly the gospel promises in all of their splendor and richness that are ours in Christ Jesus. That was our first session. And in addition to that, and in association with that, and in some ways, the Spirit so working with the Word as to cause that to be registered in our consciousness, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, a reliable testimony as the Spirit, who is a down payment or earnest of our full inheritance, and the one who bears witness with our spirit. That's where we start, and it's also where we ultimately must always end. But in the case of both the canons and the Westminster Confession, and I think rightly echoing the language of Scripture, it is also said that good works play a role. These are not good works that are any part of the basis for our salvation. These are not works that merit our salvation. These are the very works that God gives us to do by the working of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of sanctification. They're the works that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2.10 when he says, these are works God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. They're fruits, necessary fruits, that flow from true faith. I mentioned in the introduction to the first session that uh, the language often used here is think of good works as the fruits of faith in terms of what our Lord says in the Gospels when he uh, compares a a good tree that bears good fruits to the believer or the citizen of God's kingdom who is known through the fruits that are born. Now, in the epistles of 1 John or 1, 2 John, you'll find, and we, we don't have time in this particular um, session to read all of those passages, but they're largely found in the first epistle of John where you, you read the, the words you know, by this you know, by this you know. That language is used more than a half a dozen times. Those who keep God's commandments, those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who love God and love those who bear God's image. By this you know. Uh, the, The point that John is making is you can have assurance and a confirmation of the assurance God gives you through faith and by the working of the Spirit, that the faith whereby you lay hold of Christ is a true faith by the works that you see in yourself 
and in your heart and life. In the language of theology, this is oftentimes called the practical syllogism, which is just a technical way of referring to an argument that has the order of this belongs to true faith. What belongs to true faith? True faith, like a good tree, bears corresponding fruit. The evidences of the genuineness of faith are, are provided in and through what faith produces. The second premise or minor premise is, as I observe and experience my own faith life and the narrative of God's work of grace in my life, I can see tokens and I can examine myself, which is a biblical call. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. We are called to examine ourselves when we come to the Lord's table. And part of that examination is to come to have a, a realistic understanding of my own sin and need of Christ. I don't make myself, when Paul says, thereby become a worthy partaker. No one who partakes of the supper is worthy. It's a gracious invitation to the unworthy. But those who receive the invitation come knowing their need of Christ and their benefiting from the sacrament as a means to confirm, seal, signify, and seal that he is a faithful Savior and that his sacrifice is sufficient, greater far than all of my sin. He has fully satisfied for all my sins. So assuredly, as I take that bread and take that cup, I know that Christ answers to my need. He is able to save to the uttermost those to come, who come to him in the way of faith. Um, but back to the main point here, you may take appropriately inventory. Ask yourselves in a process of self-examination. Are there any tokens, evidences? You know, the Heidelberg Catechism quite explicitly says in connection with the role of good works in the Christian life that they prove the genuineness of our faith. Uh, that's a legitimate enterprise. It's acknowledged in the confessions and affirmed. But I do want to make very clear that the order is not insignificant. They don't start here. Such an inventory, such a self-examination, such a looking at myself, and I use the language practical syllogism. I could make things more complicated and mention that in the tradition there were those who spoke of that syllogism as both a practical, do the works that I do, and good works are understood from Scripture to be works done from true faith. They're not done to obtain favor with God, to merit his favor. They're works that are motivated by a genuine desire to bring glory to God, to please him by doing what I know he's made known in his word. His holy law is pleasing to him, to live accordingly. And um, they're done according to that standard, not to, according to human standards, but according to the requirements of God's heart, to God's glory from true faith and according to the standard of his holy law. Now, those, 
Those good works express themselves in deeds, but they also express themselves in dispositions, affections that belong to true faith, joy in Christ and in the gospel promise, sorrow for my sin, uh, a desire to please him. It's what sometimes is referred to as the mystical uh, syllogism. All of that is affirmed, is legitimate, but my main point is going to be within the framework of a prior and even subsequent recognition that there will be given me on that basis left to itself alone, no secure platform, no, as the hymn writer likes to put it in a variety of ways, solid rock foundation for my confidence in respect to God's favor. I'm sure that many of you may have heard the well-known quip of Charles Spurgeon that if you look within yourself overly long, I'm paraphrasing, you'll find that the duff of peace and confidence of God's favor begins to fly away, leave, depart. When you look outside of yourself, away from yourself to Christ, the dove of peace begins to take up residence and rest in your heart. I think it was McShane who once said, look to Christ 50 times for every time you look once inwardly upon yourself. A preoccupation, an inordinate attention to and reflection upon your experience of God's grace and what it has produced in you, whether inwardly or outwardly, is not going to get you very far down the way in the road pathway toward greater assurance. If I may quote from the Heidelberg Catechism, if the Catechism is correct when it says, uh, we only make as believers, and this is a generalization about all believers, there are no perfect believers, no saints perfected prior to Christ's coming in the sense of being fully glorified, we make only a small part of that perfect obedience that God requires of us when even as our Lord reminds us in his summary at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and we will someday be perfected in holiness. But what we see in ourselves in this life being what it is, if you were to stand on that in God's presence, you would be on very shaky and uncertain ground. Now, none of that is to take away from the importance because it also is true. And that's part of the call to self-examination in the scriptures. We can deceive ourselves. We can be as hypocrites and unbelievers when we come to the table of the Lord. We could be self-deceived in the sense of thinking ourselves as members of Christ and our sins forgiven when we're living at enmity with God, ultimately, and at enmity with others. Where 
our life belies our testimony and our profession. And that no one, no matter how robust your affirmation of full assurance may be, and I try to be fairly encouraging, and I'm particularly with any believer who has doubts and struggles with the question of assurance, to point them away from themselves. But there is also the reverse. There is the person who is self-deceived. Now, we don't seek to discern the heart. God alone is able to search the heart and know perfectly what lies within. Uh, But a person who's living in open sin, casually, resolutely disregarding the uh, holy law of God, who has no interest in making proper use of the means of grace, who's been confronted even by a fellow believer, admonished, called to repentance, possibly even placed under, uh, in more serious cases, the process of discipline, formal and official, that could lead to excommunication. Such persons need to be warned. They need to be told that unless you repent and turn from your persistently sinful, habitually disobedient form of conduct, unless you return to the fellowship of Christ's church and make proper use of all the means of grace, which include the whole ministry of the church, most especially the preaching ministry and the sacraments and a proper response and use of Christian discipline, you are to be warned that you're in serious peril. So I say all of this not to undermine what I've said previously about the proper cultivation and grounds for, and in their appropriate sequence, the cultivation of assurance. Um, It all depends. Pastors or would-be pastors, I'm a seminary professor, I often remind my students that you have all kinds of different people in the pew in front of you and in the context of your ministry of the word. You have some people who can't obtain assurance. Their consciences are overly sensitive. Uh, You speak in one way to them with a little different accent than you might speak to the casual, indifferent, um, seemingly unwilling to heed the warnings and admonitions of the gospel. Uh, You may need to speak to such a person in quite a different accent and tone. But the the general, by way of summary, point of these three sessions is that when it comes to grounding and cultivating and growing in assurance as a believer, it will only happen when in proper order sequence, you start with and look always primarily to what the the word of the gospel declares to you concerning the saving work of Jesus Christ and put your trust in him and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for the assurance of your being under God's favor for his sake. You bear in mind that the spirit attends the word not with a witness that goes beyond or away from or outside of what is made known to you in his words, but which confirms to you and fortifies your readiness to accept uh, what is 
given you to know, even in your own spirit. And yes, you may, and you must properly uh, test and ensure that you're not self-deceived or that you're not doing what Paul warns against, for example, in Romans, sinning that grace may abound, turning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ into an excuse for unbelief and disobedience. And that brings us to the end of another insightful series of episodes. We're thankful for the wisdom and guidance provided by Dr. Venema as we looked into this topic of assurance of salvation. As we conclude this series, we look ahead to what lies before us. Join us next time as we embark on a two-part series on church history and pastoral care led by Reverend Paul Hippema. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for, subscribe, leave a review for Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for listening.